catchy. Alright. I like it too, actually. It's, it's kind of catchy to me. Okay. We are obviously in church history, and as people will come in. Yeah, don't don't give me that. Actually, you of all people, we haven't been here in like nine weeks, so nine. Sarah made a face for those of no, you listening at home. Ooh, that's about right. <laughs> Dude, we're not even in the Renaissance anymore, so Reformation, Renaissance is over, man. Uh, we are in the midst of the of the Reformation though. And today, last time we talked about a lot of dead Anabaptists. Um, today we're going to talk about <laughs> more people dying. It's just what the Reformation is all about, actually. It's no, it's a reform of the church, but it's also uh, the best way to make sure that you reform the church is to kill everybody that disagrees with you, right? We're seeing that a lot, right? Is that as people reform, they go, "Oh, I'm making changes. Let's change the system. The change, the system is is wrong. The system is messed up. Let's make changes. Let's all reform." And, and David says, "Yeah, let's reform." And I say, "I think we should reform like this." And David says, "Yeah, I think we should reform exactly that way." And I say, "I think we should reform like this." And he says, "Or even maybe this." And I say, "Die," right? Because he's different than me. And and if you're different, I gotta make sure that I kill you as a heretic. This is important. Well. As we're getting into, you know, this happened to be the one I looked at. So, as, as we're getting into the Reformation, it begins to institutionalize. What do you think I mean by that? Get the Lutheran Church and the Reformed Church. Different oh, denominations. And I love that, by the way. I'm gonna. I love that any given church calls itself the Reformed Church. Like the Lutherans are not Reformed. The Anabaptists are not Reformed. Only this church is Reformed. It's kind of like uh, the Church of Christ referring to themselves as the Christian they, Church. They copyrighted it before the rest of it. That's right. <laughs> well, seriously, like the Church of Christ. You know, sits there and goes, well, we're the Church of Christ. I'm like, well, you know, we're a Church of Christ, too. No, you aren't. Because we're the Church of Christ. We have a little little C in a circle next to that. Um, yeah, it starts off as this idea of, if you remember with, with Luther, this idea of, I think something's wrong. I think things need to be changed. Erasmus saying, I think we need to change things. We need to reform the church. Now we're starting to get into the point where it's not just a reform of the church, it's the Reformation. This is a movement. This is a specific thing. And, and we need to start making rules, and we need to start making sure everybody else follows our rules. We need to institutionalize this. This is no longer just about reforming the church. This is about telling everybody else what to do. So... 1528, we get a bunch of things where, where reformers are intertwining with the state. How do we get the state to make sure everybody does this right? Because best thing we can do, we've learned this from history, best thing we can do is legislate Christianity, right? The best way to make sure everybody is a good Christian is to make sure that the law reflects that. Right? Not even remotely. Not even remotely. Worst way... I know. Worst way that we can move Christianity around, worst way we can change people, is to make sure that the state acts like a Christian state. But here we got in 1528, Swing Lee brings Anabaptist preacher Balthazar. Remember Balthazar Hobbaya that we talked about a couple weeks ago? Yep, he's up on charges for heresy again. Again. Because Swing Lee has now successfully convinced the city council of Zurich to make rebaptism a capital offense. If you rebaptize, if you baptize an adult after they've been baptized as an infant, you die, right? Because that's the best way to make sure that people don't do the theologically wrong thing. Don't sit down and interact with them about this. Don't figure out why different people are taking this different ways. No, no, no. Kill them. So if you're an Anabaptist, that's a capital offense. Now, if you remember, they, 
They tortured Hubmeyer for seven months to make him recant the last time. And after seven months of constant torture, he finally said, fine, 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 I recant everything I said. Stop, just stop hurting me. And they had released him. But this time he's like, nope, I, I recant my recantation and, and I'm preaching on a baptism. Not because I'm, I'm a rebel, but because I genuinely don't see infant baptism in scripture. And he even said, if anybody could show me infant baptism in scripture, I'll, I'll preach it. I just don't see it anywhere. Um, so he's not, he's not actually trying to be rebellious, and yet he's preaching something that he knows is a capital offense. Again, I'm not expecting everybody to automatically be Anabaptist in this class, but hopefully you understand he's not trying to be obnoxious, he's just trying to preach what he genuinely believes. So they tortured him again, they refused to recant, and they burned him alive at the stake. His wife, Elspeth, is standing there watching him and shouting encouragements and telling him she loves him as he's dying and he shouts back that he loves her that she should hold on and he tells his followers to pray and support one another in times of suffering he's like pray that we all get through this pray that you get through this with your faith intact and whatever you do do not do this do not repay evil with evil that's how he dies so Twingley three days later makes sure that Elspeth is drowned in the, in the Danube now, and this is interesting. This is actually a really good woodcut for her because they didn't throw her under the Danube. They tied a stone around her neck and then tipped her over. Most of her never even got wet, and she died. Because it's like a third baptism, get it? It's, it's clever. It's, it's a clever way to kill. Hubmeyer's personal motto survived for centuries afterwards. Die Wahrheit ist untödlich, untödlich. The truth is unkillable. You can kill me, you can't kill the truth. You can sit there and say, just go die. And I will still say resoundingly, just show me in the Bible. Show me where this is, and I'll believe it. That's it. Stop preaching that. I'd stop preaching it if you would just show me the truth. Where is this written? We'll kill you if you say this. You can't kill the truth. Just show me where it's written. Which is interesting, because that becomes kind of the watchword of the covenant centuries later. P.P. Waldenstrom, that we'll talk about years later, said, show me where it's written. Everything that I want to preach, I want to make sure it comes from the Bible. You want to preach something? Show me where it's written, and let's do it that way. So for centuries, this, the truth is unkillable thing, keeps coming back, echoing and echoing, going, you can do whatever you want to to my body, but you can't change what I'm, what I'm teaching. Kind of a powerful message. This Anabaptist movement continued, even though it's a capital offense to continue with that. These are the people that end up doing some other different funky things later on that we'll talk about. But these are the people who are, for the most part, decidedly pacifists. And I think it's interesting that most of the time when we think of pacifists, when you talk to somebody, especially when they're not thinking about it in theological terms, they think of passive. People who just kind of let things happen. You go, there is absolutely nothing passive about this kind of pacifism. Spelled different, too. It just unfortunately sounds the same in English. But it takes some serious guts and some serious moxie and active faith to hold up under that kind of pain and anguish. Well, this is also the year that Denmark, Norway, which is a, that's the name of the, of, the, of the country now since the two kingdoms united back in 1524, Denmark, Norway. You wouldn't, you know, they don't just call themselves Denmark, they don't just call themselves Norway. Denmark, Norway, because that just trips off the tongue. It's Bloomington Normal. That's right. It's Champaign-Urbana. It's Denmark-Norway. What's your point? So Denmark-Norway 
accepts Lutheranism as its state religion. Its future king, uh, King Christian III, pushes for this and says, "This we're going to make sure everybody in Denmark, Norway is a Lutheran. To be born in Norway, to be born in Denmark, said, means you are part of the Lutheran Church, right? Because otherwise you wouldn't be part of the Catholic Church. Now you're part of the Lutheran Church because that's the way it should be. Now I got to change how I'm doing Lutheran, Luther here, because I've been showing him as a, as a slender." Augustinian monk, and he's not really Augustinian anymore. Uh, he doesn't dress like an Augustinian monk. He doesn't eat like an Augustinian monk. He still drinks like an Augustinian monk. Uh, so he's he's drunk a lot, but he's, he's getting a little chunky and, and healthy as time goes on. So i got to start putting him this way. But if you're born in Denmark, Norway, you're automatically part of the Lutheran Church, the church that teaches that you're saved only by faith. Do you see a problem with this? What, what do you see as a problem? Well, no, 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 you have to come to faith. Right. Right, so you're part of the church. So you're saved. What's the problem? What's the problem here? I mean, you can't, and yet they do for centuries. The idea is, yes, you're only saved by faith. This whole Catholic notion that you're saved by something that somebody does outside of you is just bogus. You're saved by your faith in Christ. And the fact that you were born in Denmark, Norway. That makes you part of the church. For centuries, they still haven't, they're still in the process of dealing with, I should say, the idea of can't you be part of the church without being a Christian? Can't you be part of God's church without being regenerate? Can't you be part of God's church without you specifically having faith? I mean, the Bible is very clear that you can be part of the church without being part of God's family. Or better yet, you can be part of God's family without being regenerated in Christ, right? Give me give me a good example of a verse where God makes it clear you can be part of the church of God without having a regenerated faith. You can be part of the family of Christ without having any personal faith, without being changed, without being a Christian, right? Are you saying my baby, whom I love, is not a Christian because they don't have a faith? Are you saying that if my child, at a time when, if you remember, like, was it one in three children are dying uh, before they reach the age of five? If Are you telling me that at a time when children are dying right and left, that my child is not in the, safely in the family of Christ unless they are old enough where they can make a decision for themselves? How dare you do that? That makes me extremely uncomfortable. Yes? Can you give me any scripture that suggests that you are part of the family of God? You are part of the church if you do not have a regenerated faith in Christ. I've never seen one. Now, Yeah, because they believed. It specifically says because they believed. I didn't know that it meant. What did it have? I mean, you can't even tell. Hold on. What did you say? Sanctified, set apart. That, 
That means set apart. That part of the family of God, they're saved, right? Because set apart means the same thing. Now, there are times where there are things in Scripture to say that there are some blessings, just like there are blessings to be married to a believing spouse, even if you do not believe. It does not mean that you are saved because your spouse believes. Sanctified does not necessarily, in that case, set apart, made holy, does not necessarily mean... If so, booyah, go marry people that are died in the little Satanists so that they can go to heaven. Pretty sure that's not what that's getting at. I ask you how this works, not to bolster them for them. Was there an age that you had to profess faith, or was you just... Oh, okay, we already talked about this with Lutheranism. What they Sorry, did was, I you were... Been here for nine and 500 years. Um, you, <laughs> you, you, you were baptized into the Lutheran Church, and you were saved through baptism into no, the Lutheran Church. Oh, yeah. But, you don't know if it takes or not. So you have to confirm later. Which is why they developed something called confirmation. So everybody is saved through baptism unless they're not. And if they aren't, you got to figure that out later in confirmation. And then you go, oh, okay, if, if a kid goes through confirmation and they say, yeah, I believe all this, they must have been saved at baptism. If a kid goes through confirmation and they say, well, this is crap, obviously they weren't saved through, through, through uh, baptism. We've got to do something about that. I've had multiple... Lutheran theologians explain it to me that way. So this is interesting where you go, well, so, you, so what, so you're saying baptism may or may not be efficacious for salvation, and there's no rhyme or reason as to why? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I mean, it's the same in the, in the Methodist church. Yeah. I mean, well, there's a reason, there are multiple... United, sorry, I need to specify that. United Methodist Church. Everything I've ever heard with the United Methodist Church follows basically that same theology. Actually, yes. Actually, kind of do, yeah. Um, I, without, without slamming, I want to back up. I don't want to slam people having different perspectives. I will just say, um, there's a reason why we don't do confirmation in this church. We have a mentoring program. We do, we do discipling. We do. I, there's nothing to confirm or not confirm about whether or not their baptism took when they were when they were baptized an infant. But we do want to follow up on all the stuff that they've. That they've been learning as as, uh, as children in our church, and make sure that they go well. As you're getting into a teenage years, we want to make sure we actively are going. Where are you at with the Lord? Not confirming their baptism or confirming that they have already been saved at baptism, but confirming that they actually understand what they're talking about. Oh. Actually, our church is officially open to just about any way that you oh, want to get baptized. So. Our church, as in the covenant. Our our first covenant church. We don't, yeah, thank you. All right, so, struggle with the state religion concept for a while, and uh, in fact, our, our church, our evangelical covenant church, uh, it was a direct um, movement away from this, saying we don't believe in the concept of a state church in Sweden. We want to make some decisions about having personal faith in Christ. All right, moving on. 1529, big year for empire builders, 1529. For those trying to build an empire, the unstoppable juggernaut known as the Ottoman Empire laid siege to Vienna, right? Because they have been exploding the last century uh, across Europe, and they're going to continue to do so. And they were stopped cold at Vienna. Nothing stopped them. They can't lose. They keep growing and growing and growing and growing. And 
they think very much that they're going to take over all of Europe. Suleiman, the Magnificent, the guy leading the Ottoman Empire. By the way, if you'll notice, the sultans keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger hats. So, <laughs> Suleiman, the, the Magnificent Hat, declares a jihad against all of Europe. And he's like, I'm going to be the new Tamerlane. I'm going to be a new sword of Islam. I will make all of Europe Islamic. All of it is going to be green here on the map. We've been fighting for a century. We can't lose. I'm sending 150,000 troops into Europe. We're going to win. And yet they are stopped cold at Vienna because he failed to count on three crucial things. I, I really can't, I really can't express how big this siege of Vienna is in terms of European history and church history. First off, a 70-year-old guy named Niklas of Salm, this count who was a veteran soldier, that the that Vienna said, "How do we survive this?" We ask you to come on in and, and help Vienna survive this. What do we need to do? And he said, well, first off, you need to do whatever I tell you to do. It is martial law, and I am in charge utterly and completely. You do everything I tell you to do it when I tell you to do it. And I said, okay. I said, all right. We're going to build up the walls. I'm ripping down all these perfectly good buildings over here because they're easy to knock down. They're, they become targets. We're knocking all these things down. We're using the the, uh, the uh, stone from that to build up new walls. We need bigger, thicker walls. We're going to make redoubts in the city. So even if the outside walls fall, we can still come inside. We can be inside other walls. This city has ceased to be a city and is now a fortress. All right? First. Second, tear up all these streets. That's it. No more cobblestone streets. Dirt. Now remember when we talked about Masada? When the Romans were trying to break through the walls, and they're like, how do we make these walls stronger, harder? And Eliezer Benier said, no, no, no. Not stronger, softer. What we don't want is a wall that the Romans can break through. What we want is a wall that when they hit it, they just go thud. What we want is streets that when cannonballs hit, they don't bounce and ricochet and hit everybody and destroy more buildings. We want soft soil so that when the cannonballs hit it, they just go then we take their cannonballs and we use it for our new artillery. We're building artillery to the same gauge as the Muslims' artillery so that when their cannonballs hit us, we shoot them back at them. I'm going to teach you how to do artillery. I'm going to teach you how to fight back. We will withstand this. This was so the right guy to pick. Secondly, it rains really bad in the Balkans in the spring. I don't know if you know this, but apparently Suleiman didn't. Even today, they get really nasty flooding all over the place in the springs, uh, in, the, in the spring. And, 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 and Suleiman couldn't bring up, yeah, and Suleiman couldn't bring up all of his artillery that he wanted, not the, not the big stuff. He's like, he only got some of the cannons to come, because how would, you, how would you drive cannons through this? This is horrible. Besides which, he's got 150,000 troops. No, no, no. By the time he gets there, he's lost thousands because of sickness, because they've been marching in the cold rains forever. So all he's got there, he's got, he's got a, still thousands of guys. And light cavalry. Are, is light cavalry really effective in a siege? Not so much. He also didn't count on the Landsknechte. These guys are interesting, so they deserve a funky little teaching moment. This is German for lands knights, a, a term for mercenaries that the Holy Roman Empire created. They're an interesting band of guys, and very colorfully dressed. Um, 
But they were developed specifically as a counterpart to the Swiss Guard. They're like, Rome has, you know, the Pope has this Swiss Guard. I want a Swiss Guard, but just not from Switzerland. So they got this German Guard, trained them like the Swiss Guard, because the Roman Empire wanted its own version of what Rome. I love how the Roman Empire and Rome have are adversaries at this moment. Anyway. Uh, these guys were incredibly tough. They even beat the Swiss Guard in head-to-head -head competition. When they fought against the Swiss Guard, these guys beat them a couple of times. These guys were crazy tough. And they were renowned not only for their fighting prowess, but for dressing like this. This is actually a legit way of... This is exactly the way they look. And you sit there and you go, eh, they look ridiculous. Well, they did this for a couple of different reasons. Number one, a lot of historians point to some of the things that these guys wrote to say... They are constantly facing death. Day to day, they know that they're going to die possibly the next day. So they're going to dress really well, eat really well. It's like, it's, it's Armani suits and lobster dinners every stinking day. Because I don't, I don't, well, my life expectancy is pretty, pretty short. But the main reason why they dress this way is they wanted any army that comes up against them to go, oh, those are Lons Connects. I don't want to go up against these guys. It's like, oh, look, here's the defenders. Yeah, they're all wearing, they're all wearing armor and everything. What are those guys? I saw a bunch of guys out there. They're dressed in like, like all sorts of poofy shirts and bright yellows and reds and blues. And people are like, oh no, 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 no. Tell me you didn't see guys dressed like that. Which is exactly the same reason why uh, Britain still allows their black watch uh, to dress in black watch plaid and 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 kilts. Everybody else has got to wear like you know, normal British uniforms. Not the Black Watch, the, the Scottish Special Forces Regiment. They want everybody to know that this is Black Watch. But when these guys come on the field, you just go, oh, I give up. I give up now. I give up a lot right now. <clears throat> yeah. Would it help them in the midst of battle not to kill their own? I'm sure that would. I'm sure that, it wouldn't hurt. Right, that's, that's, you know, all these big battles that you see, you know, oh, yeah. depicted on television. You wonder how, how do you know who's on your side? Well, again, that's one of the fun things about uh, about uh, Scottish clan warfare. It's like, oh, no, don't kill him. He's wearing green. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they're the red guys. You, know, you tell from a glance. Yeah, I'm sure that wouldn't hurt. I'm sure that wouldn't hurt at all. But. Uh, um, Oh, golly, yes. Hitler should have learned to check the weather in Russia. Nobody ever checks the weather. I don't know what's up with that. Actually, um, Eisenhower checked the weather before the D-Day the landing, and even then, uh, he was told, you probably shouldn't land now. We should probably wait another month for everything to be... And he, he, he literally got like every, was it like every half an hour or something like that. He got weather reports. He's like, I want to know. I want to know if there's an opening. Tell me if there's an opening. If there, I got... I've got to make a change here really fast, but I, I want to go now. So tell me. And finally they came up and they said, there'll be an opening. You'll have a couple of hours. And he's like, we're totally going. Eisenhower is smarter than everybody else. Ah! Emperor Carlos V, right? Charles V. But he's Spanish, so we're going to call him Carlos. Carlos V sends 17,000 Landsknechter to defend Vienna. Now it's against 150,000 uh, of the Muslims-ish. So it's, it's still a small band, comparatively. But these guys were tough. Not only are they tough, but they used cutting-edge war technologies, like these 18-foot pikes, these long spice pipes, uh, pikes, these long spits, that had 10-inch blades on the front. 
picture being light cavalry going up against that. Uh, well, actually, a later phalanx, if you think about it. But yeah, the Schiltron, or however you want to call it. But the Swiss actually came up with this formation of, uh, of, of pikes. But could you be light cavalry and go up against that very well? This is nasty. And this is exactly how the Scots won at Bannockburn, is by making these long pikes and, and skewering the, the, the English cavalry. They also had six-foot swords called two-handers. And I love how this guy is it's really kind of nasty. If you look at it, it's, it's scalloped. They're not designed specifically for hand-to-hand -hand combat. What would a, what would a six-foot sword like that that has almost sawtooth edges, what would that be good for, do you think? If not, you could do it as hand-to-hand -hand combat. But what else would it be good for? You get through brush. You get through brush, but in combat itself, you know? Yes! You use this against their pikes and lances. You knock that heads off of them. You, as they're coming up with their pikes and lances, you use your, your two-hander to knock theirs so that all they have is now a stick. You have 18-foot pikes aimed at them. They've got sticks aimed at you. This is nasty. This is anti-tank warfare, is what these things are. Again, makes your light cavalry kind of pointless. They also used a matchlock firearm called an arquebus, right here. Uh, a matchlock is the, uh, is the precursor to the flintlock, but you'd have like this little wick, and you'd, you'd, your trigger would pull the wick down into the powder and set off your, your firearm. They used these, they used grenades, they used all sorts of, of mobile weapons of mass destruction. This is one of the first times in history that people did this. Now, we've seen people using firearms. Tamerlane even used firearms and things. We've seen people using firearms, but this is the first time you've got a mobile infantry running around using firearms. 17,000 guys, can they stand up against 50,000 guys? If they can keep running around, if they can keep dodging behind rocks and things and shooting you, and then ducking behind a completely different rock and shooting you and lobbing grenades at you, yeah. Yeah, you really can. And so... When the Ottomans finally did make a breach in the walls, they finally made a big hole. They're like, aha! They found 17,000 lines connected, standing there in the gap. And they sent wave after wave after wave of Turks, and wave after wave of wave of Turks got killed. These guys held Vienna and pushed it back. And so, even though for a century the Ottoman Empire hasn't been beaten, they stop at Vienna, and from now on, it's all just a slow recession back into Turkey. It's a slow recession. You're still going to be doing some damage. You're still going to be doing some different things in Europe. But that whole, we're terrified of the Turks. They're going to take over Europe. You know, no, that ends now. Now, there's another major victory at Lepanto that we'll talk about later. But um, this is a crucial victory for Christendom. But i got to ask, is Christendom always a healthy concept? Not so much. This is also the same year that Spain and Portugal figured out what to do about the Far East, what with expanding Christendom and all, right? Now, if you'll remember, back in 1479, they had a treaty that gave uh, Africa and everything east of Africa to Portugal, right? That same treaty gave everything west of Africa to Spain. Well, that's a good question, because even, even once they discovered the New World, they're like, well, wait a minute. Spain can't have all of that, right? So, 1494, new treaty says, all right, all right, all right, all right. Everything west of 
this particular meridian is Spanish. Everything east of that is Portuguese, which is why Brazil got to be Portuguese. Right? That's fair. But again, is Spain west of the New World, or is, is Japan west of Spain's New World or east of Portugal's Africa? Is it the Far East or the Far, Far West? What with the world being a globe, you know, it's all kind of up to interpretation. So, we already know Portugal holds the world's only source of nutmeg and cloves, what they call the Spice Islands, out in the Far East. These guys have tons of money coming in from that, because they got to the Far East first. But Magellan actually circumnavigated, circumnavigated the globe, and they hold the Philippines, named after Felipe, the king of Spain, right? So, you've got Spain holding a lot of stuff, and Portugal holding a lot of stuff. Who gets... They're starting to fight each other over there. They're starting to, to, to bump heads. What do you do? So 1529, the Treaty of Zaragoza. That's how you got to say it. Zaragoza. But in Castilian, Zaragoza. Uh, divided the Far East between them in much the same way as they divided the New World. So everything between these lines is Portuguese. Everything on the other side of these lines is Spanish. If you notice, the Portuguese say, well, we'll just keep doing this little trade route, and the Spanish go, well, we'll just keep them around this way. That's fine. What? Well, that gets interesting. Um, that's interesting. Uh, well, part of what helped with that was the Reformation in England. Because England goes, who cares what the Pope says? Because the Pope, <laughs> the Pope says, this is what we do. I mean, we're going to give Spain the Philippines because they're named after the Spanish king, so can't very well give that to the Portuguese. It just feels a little silly that way. Um, but we're going to give you everything here, as, and you can claim any non-Catholic lands. You get to claim them for you. They get to be yours. Now, what about like England and Holland and other things that start growing as, as trade? Eventually, they sit there, by the time they're actually doing their own explorations, they're no longer Catholic. So who cares what the Pope says? Well, the Pope said, we could have it. I'm not Catholic. I don't care about your Pope. I think I like North America. So, on you. Um, the, the, the Spanish and the Portuguese totally, I mean, the biggest treasures right now that you could possibly get, if you're a pirate and you capture a Spanish or a Portuguese ship, what is far none, the biggest, most important thing you can take from that ship? Do you know? Want to hazard a guess? I take it as not gold. It's not gold. Who cares about gold? Nope. The spices are nothing compared to this. Tobacco. Nope. No, oh, they haven't got tobacco yet. Salt. Maps. Oh. <laughs> maps. There is nothing that the Spanish and Portuguese hold more dear than their maps to how to get to the Far East. If you ever get attacked by Dutch or English, you burn your rudders, your maps. You make sure nobody gets to see these. You do not let them figure out how to get there. Because as big as gold is, as big as the spices are, if they get maps, they can get spices from the Spice Islands. So we hide this. There was an English, um, actually a Dutch ship that carried an English navigator that made it to the Japans around 1600. 
and they, they made a, a miniseries based loosely on that. Does anybody know the miniseries from 1980 based loosely on the true story of a British navigator that made it to the Japan's? Shogun! Shogun! And so, <laughs> great little miniseries. If you haven't seen it, go watch the miniseries. But there's actually a scene in this where the English navigator, the Protestant English navigator, explains to the Japanese the, the Treaty of Saragossa. So, enjoy. This is a map of the world. The earth is round like an orange. This map is like its skin cut off, laid out flat. North, south, east, west. Japan, Nihon, is here. My country is here. Okata. <laughs> This is Africa. These are the Americas. We know only the coastlines, very little else. Lord wishes you to show him on the map how you came to Japan. This way. By Magellan's Pass of Strait, here by the tip of South America. It's called that after the Portuguese navigator who discovered it 80 years ago. Since then, the Spanish and Portuguese have kept the way secret. We were the first outsiders through the pass. Aren't you going to translate? I will explain everything to Lord Tranagaleta. When he wishes to know something, he will ask. 70 years ago, the kings of Spain and Portugal signed a solemn treaty, dividing the ownership of the new world, the undiscovered world, between them. Since your country falls in the Portuguese half, officially your country belongs to Portugal. Lord Toranaga, you, everyone, this castle, everything in it, was given to the Portuguese. Please excuse me, but that does not make sense. <laughs> it was written into legal documents that gave each king the right to claim any non-Catholic land and replace the existing government with Catholic rule. Many lands in the Americas have already been plundered by the Spanish and their treasures taken back to Spain. Portugal has grown rich from gold and silver from Brazil. If this is true, how could the kings of Spain and Portugal give themselves such rights? They didn't. The Pope gave them the rights. The vicar of Christ on earth himself, in exchange for spreading the word of God. I don't believe what you say is true. It is true, lady. Pope Clement VII, sanctioned the Treaty of Saragossa in the year 1529, giving Portugal the exclusive right to your country and Cathay. Okay, now you guys chuckled. Why? By the way, history's great, man. History's everywhere. Uh, so, you guys chuckled. Why? Because she's right. Who gave them the right to divide the earth? It's utterly ridiculous that they could come along and go, by the way, you're now under Portuguese land. You know, Portuguese. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, did I what? Um, we've got bigger cities, bigger armies, cleaner towns than you do. What 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 gives you the right to say that we belong to you? Pope told us. What's a Pope? What? I don't get this. You can see why, and I showed you that clip not only because it explains it well, and not only because it's a nifty miniseries, you really should. Netflix it. Um, but because you sit there and you go, it would be utterly ridiculous to these people. 
They totally would. They'd be sitting there going, this is, this is nuts. I don't care whether you're sitting in the Incan Empire or the Aztec Empire or the Japanese Empire. You should be sitting there going, who, who are they to say that I'm suddenly now Portuguese or I'm suddenly now Spanish? It's kind of a huge thing. They, they didn't do a good job of they did or did not? They, they did. Good, good. I don't know Japanese, but I got the impression that they did. They did. Okay, 1531. Everything gets turned around a lot in, in 1531. We've already talked about this is the year that the English church, at, at point of practice, has broken away from Rome, right? This is the year that they, they, uh, the, the Henry, King Henry VIII of England declares himself the head over the English church. Uh, and he had been the fide defensor, the defender of the faith. He was the poster child of what it meant to be a Catholic monarch. So this is kind of huge. Um, the next year, the Church of England surrendered all the legislative rights within the church to the king. He decides everything within the church. Uh, over the next two years, all rights to appeal to Rome are cut so that the Archbishop of Canterbury is the final authority within the clerics of the church in England. 1536... Um, Henry is officially named the Supreme Head of the Church of England, which was later changed to Supreme Governor of the Church of England, which monarchs in England are still called. They are still the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. So this is kind of a big deal, 1531, 32, 33, 34, up to 36. This is also the same year that several Lutheran princes in Germany formed what they called the Schmalkaldic League, or the Schmalkaldischerbund, this idea of this group of people that met in this town of Schmalkalden and wrote up an accord to protect one another against Carlos V and his Catholic forces. We're going to have a bunch of Lutheran princes saying, we're going to come to each other's aid. If anybody tries to march through us and make us Catholic, we're going to support each other. That's kind of a big deal. Now, they're not officially making Germany Lutheran, but they're saying, all of us who are Lutheran leaders are going to forcibly defend our right to be Lutheran. It's a half step from being specifically a state church. So you've got Denmark, Norway, and England, and now large chunks of Germany that have officially broken away from the Catholic Church. No. Still a bunch of Germanic provinces, princedoms and things, and it's all part of that Holy Roman Empire. But this is kind of big because it's for years, we've had little clumps of Albigensians floating around in southern France. We've had Lutherans floating around in different pockets in Germany. But just within the span of, what, three years? Within the span of three years, you have major world powers breaking away from the Catholic Church. This has never really happened before. This is absolutely immense to create their own state churches. We are this, we are that, we are, to look at it from this perspective, the Reformation is becoming a socio-political movement. It's not just about what we believe, but it's about your right to believe. And when I say right to believe, it's your right to defend that belief. So it's your right to have Lutheran armies to defend that belief. All that is a logical progression, right? So religion and religious wars become about your rights to have self-rule and do what you believe. Is that a religious war or is that a socio-political war? Or at least a switchy bit of, of, of both of them. 
But you can see why. Yeah, go ahead. Well, you say uh, defend your right to have faith, but if both of them want to defend, then there'll never be a war. One of them's got to want to put their force on the other. Fair enough. Yeah. So there, um, somebody's got to be the aggressor, and we're going to talk about some of them aggressors. Um, but yeah, but, you, but the point I'm getting at here is it starts getting a little muddy. Are, are you really engaging in a war because you believe differently than the other person, or are you engaging in a war because you're defending your right to believe differently than the other person? It, it really kind of is, isn't it? At what point, yeah, at, at what point are you being offensive, and, and I don't care whether you're taking armies or if it's just you getting in somebody's face. At what point are you getting offensive about your faith? At what point are you being assertive about your faith? At what point are you expressing and explaining your faith? At what point are you defending your faith? At what point are you arguing because you're not trying to be an apologist for your faith, but you're defending your right to believe differently than this other person? Which is not itself a horrible thing, but you just can't pretend that it's, a, it's an apologetic thing. And, and does it matter which one of those categories you are? The other person says, I'm offended. Yes, but not necessarily to the person who says, I'm offended. Yeah, it still matters which of those you are. It matters very much. Are you being offensive? Are you just being assertive? Are you saying, I get to believe whatever I want? Then, that matters, but just not to that other person. Then how do you prove that? In a, in a, because, I mean, then you've got the, the, yeah. the loudest person, the squeaky oil gets the wheel, you know, the loudest person. So then then all of a sudden I'm searching because this person just kept going. But I'm offended, but I'm offended. You offended me. Right. Like, no, actually I didn't, but then to well, that suggests, and that's a different Sunday school class, as to how do you actually defend your faith without arguing by throwing crayons and things. But, um, well, I just meant like even in a larger place, like the school or a workplace or... or that's an excellent question. Absolutely, that's an excellent question. What I'm just trying to get at, that's, that, and it is a good question, what I'm just trying to get at here is to, to, to remind us to stop and think sometimes and go, wait, am I actually saying... I'm taking a stand for Christ, or am I taking a stand for the right to take a stand for Christ? Is am I being am I being Christian or am I being socio-political? Not that either one of those is necessarily bad. There's slightly different things. Anyway, to go back to what Randy was saying, in the same sort of way, you have five Swiss Catholic cantons uh, that they refer to themselves as the five states that's formed to stand against the Swinglian governments. So you've got this. These clumps of German Lutheran princes in Germany clumping together to defend themselves. Now you've got a clump of Swiss Catholic canton states that are clumping together to defend themselves against the majority of the Swinglian states. These guys are feeling surrounded by the Holy Roman Empire. These guys are being surrounded by the Swinglians. And so everybody's starting to shore up political alliances. In fact, these guys send 7,000 troops to attack the Swinglians, 2,000 troops. At a village called Chapel on the Albus, Kapel am Albus, in northern Switzerland. Because that's what you do. If you're feeling like somebody else has got more troops than you do, they might tell you you can't believe what you want to believe, so you need to hit them first. And again, we get back to do you understand what I'm saying when I say, is this really a religious thing or a socio political thing? 500 Swinglians are killed in this battle, including Ulrich Swingli. This is how he dies in battle, along with I think, 24 other pastors, if I remember correctly, uh, that, that fought uh, for the Twinglian revolt. After the Catholics killed him in battle, they grabbed his dead body, 
took it out in public and burned it as a heretic so that everybody would know you don't be a Zwinglian. Now, like I said, though, these five states did this because they felt surrounded by the Zwinglians, right? So this doesn't make Zwinglianism go away, does it? In Switzerland, you're still very divided. There's a whole bunch of Catholic cantons and there's a whole bunch of Zwinglian cantons. So which do you decide to be? If you have to decide a state church, which are you? Are you? Pardon me? What you say? The one you're born in? The one you're born in? But, a lot of people try to escape to other ones? Oh uh, yeah, there's a lot of cantons swipping, flumping, you know, going to different ones. But what they end up doing in the old Swiss Confederacy is to officially allow dual state churches. We are Swiss Confederacy. We're either going to keep fighting each other ad nauseum, or we're going to say, fine. If you're a canton in Switzerland, decide. You can either be Catholic or Zwinglian. But whatever you do, don't be a Lutheran or one of them Anabaptists or whatever. But you can be one of these two. Why is that kind of a big deal? Quasi peace, or at least a, in, 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 a detente. In the same country, not like, well, over there is the Holy Roman Empire, but we're Catholic over here or whatever. Like, yep. They're living in the same, they're cohabitating. Okay, yep. So, what, the first time that, anything else? Kind of like my mother, when I give an argument with we weren't getting anywhere, she just started agreeing with me. <laughs> <laughs> not, not stronger, but softer. Yep. So, uh, the seeds of Swiss neutrality. Yes! This is not, there's a lot of historians that argue this is this is why the Swiss became famous for saying we refuse to take one side over another. Not that oh we don't care. It's like no no. It's rarely just these are the white hats and these are the black hats. Therefore we're going to remain neutral. We'll just hold all the money. <laughs> right? Stinking brilliant. Stinking brilliant. We're going to make clocks and hold your money. You know. Oh Nazis schmatzies are they bad? Are they good? I don't know. Tell you what. We'll just say neutral and everybody can put their money in Zurich. Well, that seems good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yes, this is what a lot of, of, of stories point back to saying, yeah, this is essentially where that came out of. The sense of how do you live with two mutually exclusive things pounding on each other. You go, we're just going to agree to disagree on this. We're going to agree to live and let live on this and move on. Yeah. Thirty seconds. I mean, it's an ongoing thing. All right, 1533. We're going to end this with this year talking about um, two different Christian leaders and um, how 1533 changed their lives in significant ways. Okay, the first is a guy named Ivan the Fourth Vasilievich. Um, Ivan Grosny, which means uh, Ivan, the extremely good at what he does. We tend to refer to him as Ivan the Terrible. But when you think of Ivan the Terrible, you think terrible as in he's a rotten guy, right? Okay. Think more specifically, terrible swift sword. Remember that line from the, from the song? And it's terrible swift sword. Terrible doesn't shouldn't mean, oh, he's just bad or he does horrible things. It's like really, really, really intensely good at what he does, and what he does is extremely big, scary stuff. Invincible. Invincible. Okay, I, I can take that. I, I can take that one. 
Ivan the formidable and Ivan the the uh, the invincible and Ivan the what? By the way, he's also kind of terrible in all the other ways that we just mentioned. But that's not what the word means. So when you hear Ivan the terrible, don't think, oh, because he was rotten. It's Ivan the scarily good at what he does. I don't know how you want to say that. Um, the the great at this. Anyway, Ivan Vasilievich, the Ivan the fourth Vasilievich, became the Grand Prince of Moscow and later named himself the Tsar of all the Russias. Remember that term, Tsar, that we talked about before? That, that his grandfather, Ivan III, had named, had named for himself back in 1480. What did Tsar come from? Caesar. So uh, Ivan III had said, I'm kind of like a Caesar over here in Asia. And Pardon me? Yeah, yeah. So Ivan IV said, yeah, I'm kind of like a Caesar also. I'm on the same level as Emperor Carlos and, uh, and Sultan Suleiman. We're all basically Caesars. But this wasn't like, usually those things are like, well, God said, or I am a God. I, like, it's the, well, I set up a God because I am. Well, if you have enough troops, you are. So, I mean, it's, and it's kind of... It's kind of where he was coming at. He's like, I'm, I'm really powerful, and I'm, and I'm calling myself a Tsar. In fact, in the years that he ruled, Russia nearly doubled in size. They took over Livonia and Lithuania and the Kazan Khanate that we've talked about before, and Siberia, and and it gets really kind of big and really kind of potent, and it gets even bigger after that. But he he, he is kind of terrible, you know, in in, in in all the ways we were just talking about. He's really good at what he does. Now. Uh, he did actually hold a territory bigger than what Carlos did um, because of all the stuff that he conquered. So arguably, you can make a case for that. He was extremely devout Catholic. Extremely devout Catholic. He wrote poetry. He wrote political textbooks. He wrote hymns. In fact, the very first CD put out by the Soviet Union in 1988 was of a hymn that Ivan Vasilievich IV wrote. So, I mean, this is this is a guy who dearly loved the Lord and made churches all over the place and, and, and legislated a religion across the Russias, made sure everybody had the same basic religion, made sure that all the Russian Orthodox churches had the same liturgy. Um, people talk, I was reading one historian that said, uh, Ivan brought religion to Russia. It had, there had been religious leaders, there had been a Russian Orthodox church, but Ivan brought religion to all the Russians. Yeah. So is he Catholic or Orthodox? Oh, um, that's a good. That's a good point. Um, I should probably say good Russian Orthodox, um, though he he had a lot of Catholic isms to it. But that's a good point. That's a good point. I, <clears throat> he was a very Catholic Russian Orthodox. It's the easiest way I can say it. Um, but he, 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 but Russian Orthodox, I should say that rather than Catholic, because Catholic is specifically pointing back to Rome, and he wasn't Rome. Um, he was also a bonkers nut job. He's crazy. And I was telling uh, I was telling Donna a little bit this the other day. He was prone to wild bouts of sexual debauchery. He would just lose it and just be crazy, always followed by devout repentance. I mean, sometimes even in the midst of being doing something absolutely horrible, he'd say, "Okay, we've got to stop and repent." We're doing something horrible. Messed up guy. They'd have week, weekend-long orgies in the Kremlin. Sometimes they'd engage 
thousand to fifteen hundred young girls to service the nobles and the people in his court. And in the midst of the orgies, he would stop and say, "We've all got to get down on our knees and repent. We're doing something horrible." You're nuts. You're kooky nuts. And yet, he had most of his seven wives killed for being quote exceedingly horish, for having exceeding horishness. Stone in the kettle? Stone. The pot. Oh, the, uh, yeah, the pot calling the kettle. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he, you sit there and you go, well, how, how is it that you do this, and yet you're judging everybody else for being terribly indiscreet about things? I, I don't know whether you want to argue like multiple personality disorder or just um, or borderline personality disorder or manic depressive or whatever. But yeah, he would just, he would lose it completely. And then Repent, 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 and then lose it. Do not raise your hand. Do not answer this. But in your own mind, has there ever been something where you say, I do not want to do this sin, and yet you find yourself sometimes doing the sin, and then afterwards you feel really guilty and say, I don't ever want to do that again? You could see this as like the ultimate degree version of this, or you could say, this guy didn't know what it meant to be a Christian at all in the first place. Oh, this doesn't help. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it's like I'm a rotten human being. Oh wait, I love the Lord, but she's really hot. But I really love the Lord. Uh, but he also had a rage problem. He had an absolute horrible temper, always followed by devout repentance. I mean, just lashed out, slaughtered people right and left, and then felt really bad about it afterwards. He was famous for coming up not only with new ways of torturing people, but he was very proud of the fact that he got really good at keeping people alive. Literally wrote manuals, pamphlets, on how to keep people alive. You know, make sure that you're flaying the skin off their bones, but make sure they're hydrated. Make sure that you give them X amount of time to rest, or else they'll die on you. You've got to keep this person that you've just skinned alive alive for days. You've got to you've got to amputate limbs and keep them around for a long time. You've got to you, here's how you tie this off. Here's how you do this. I mean, Vlad Tepish, oh, totally beats him in terms of volume work, in terms of how many people he killed nastily. But Ivan, he's quality work. Uh, killed thousands, but did it. I mean, just just threw himself into it. Absolutely vile sorts of ways. He, <laughs> I mean, he figured out he figured out ways specifically based on, on his reading of what hell was like. And so he would do things like they built a, a giant iron frying pan and then threw people in the in the frying pan. It took him a while to eventually fall over and burn to death. And this is nasty, nasty stuff. Um, many of them. Well, okay, A, A, some of, them, some of them didn't because it's the economy, stupid. As long as you're making money and growing and everybody's doing better, it's okay. You know, do, do people hate, hate the CIA for some of the things that they've done? Sure. So you want them to stop? Well, yes. No. I want police to stop shooting people who are pointing, potentially pointing guns at them. I'd like police to stop uh, putting chokeholds on people who are resisting arrest and threatening violence. 
because it's just plain naughty. And yet, if they don't do that, they're, they're not doing their jobs. Why do we even have a police around? Right? Does that sound hypothetically familiar to anybody? If, as to, if you're riding and your car gets, if you're riding against the police and your car gets damaged, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hey, you should do something about those guys. Is that a brick in your hand? No. Um, but the other thing, like you were saying, who do you tell? If you don't like him, what do you do? Because he also invented the concept of the secret police. Uh, it, it, this 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 group of people called the Oprachikni, the Opra, no Oprachniki, Oprachniki. I don't know Russian, so. Don't stop looking at me. The Oprachniki. <laughs> the Oprachniki. No, the Oprachniki. That um. Oprachniki. Anyway, um, that 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 would come to people's houses in the middle of the night and drag them off. You never see them again. This kind of stuff. So it's it's a little scary to go up against this guy. What happened to his kids? Were they? Hey, that's a good question. Um, one of thank you, special nickel for you after this after the class. Okay, one episode of Rage. He went to visit uh, the private eldest, private chambers of his eldest and favorite son, the one that he's grooming to be the next the next star, the one he named Ivan. He went to Ivan's private chambers to find his pregnant daughter-in-law, um, indecently light lightly clothed. In their private chambers, in their like bedrooms, she was not wearing what a proper woman should wear. I don't know what. Some bed clothes, I guess. I don't know. Um, and he beat her so badly that she miscarried the child, the heir to the, to, the, to the throne. His son desperately tried to stop him, shouting, You sent my first wife to a convent for no reason, because she was sterile. And so Ivan chucked her off to a convent. And you did the same with my second wife, for the exact same reason. She didn't have any children, so he sent her off to a convent. Without consulting his son. And now you strike the third, causing the death of the son she holds in her womb? What are you doing, you crazy person? So he beat his son to death with his scepter, and then was devoutly repentant. It's like, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? There's a reason why multiple paintings, not just one, not just from one artist, multiple paintings show Ivan with these kinds of hooded, crazy eyes. This constant sense of, what did I just do? What's going on? What are you doing? Why are you doing it? What am I doing? What am I doing? What did I just do? Let's do that. No, let's not do that. All the time. That's Yvonne. By the end of his life, he was absolutely consumed with guilt. Absolutely focused on suffering and guilt and all the things that he'd done. And he begged to be tonsured as a monk. He was like, please, please, please let me be a monk. I want to be a monk. I'm At the end, he renamed himself Jonah and had himself rechristened. I'm now a monk. <laughs> Pardon me? Not my, I said, not in my monastery. Now, here's the thing. I know. I know you have a tip, I do. But here's the thing. Um, the primitive sounds good. Go be a monk yeah. by yourself somewhere. Right. When he finally died, the Tsar of all the Russias, Caesar, was buried in a monk's robes. Now, here's the question, and here's the, here's the study question of the day. You bring up a very good point. I would not feel comfortable Yvonne did not fall uh, either. <laughs> Having said that, I wouldn't have felt very comfortable in that So, is Yvonne um, an extremely damaged Christian who didn't know how to have impulse control for whatever reason and kept let, like you were talking about with David, let his sins run wild and was repentant afterwards? He's just the most 
extreme example I know of in history of this, was he somebody who really didn't understand what it meant to be a Christian and thought that it was about do whatever you want as long as you say sorry, sorry, sorry very, very devoutly afterwards. When he asked to become a monk, is it just because he thought, if I can just punish myself and repent enough, everything goes away. It's all good now, right? It's all good. My son's back, right? In fact, he sat by his son's bedside for like a couple of days praying, dear God, I, I need a miracle. Bring him back. There's some things that you break that you can't fix. Once they're broken, they're broken. God's not bringing him back. So is he just so desperate and so guilty with no outlet for his guilt that he just, he's like, fine, I'll be a monk, anything. Just make it all go away. Or is he a Christian who says, I, I can't stop doing this stuff and I don't want to do this. I want to serve God. Help me serve God. Which is he? Is he, is he the, exactly the sort of person you would not want in your monastery? because he's a nut, and he's a dangerous nut, and I don't even know if he knows Christ at all. Or is he exactly the person you want in your monastery because you go, you desperately, desperately need to be forgiven and desperately need to change? It's a terrifying question. I don't know. I really don't know. But that's a legit question for us today. Somebody is this messed up. Do you sit there and you say, you obviously have no idea what you're doing. Or is he messed up and you go, you're messed up in exactly the same way I am. Just, you're just the most extreme example of what I'm messed up with. Yeah? It sounds like he's kind of messed up like Saul of Tarsus, except without Christ experience. Quite possibly. Although, he would see himself as having a Christ experience. The, That's maybe. Really tough for us. It, but that's a that's a legit possibility. I mean, Bill's absolutely right. It could very possibly be that he has all the trappings of Christianity without ever really being changed. It's part of a state religion concept where you're a Christian because you were born here, right? Never had a conversion experience. Never went from death to life. He's a dead corpse pretending to be alive. He's a zombie Christian. It, that's 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 a distinct possibility, isn't it? He's certainly acting that way. What's the other distinct possibility that you're getting at, Sarah? Well, I guess I'm not saying that Bill's wrong. No. It's just the fact that, I mean, your fruit's ought to say something, but he's also showing remorse and repentance, and it, it's kind of between him and the Lord. It is possible, like I said, that he's, he's just somebody who is deeply messed up and keeps sinning and then genuinely repents. Is he, let me let's put it this way. First John tells us that no one who, is, who has Christ in him is going to keep on sinning. And, and, and the, the force of the Greek of that is, is that, you're not going to blithely live in sin, keep on doing what you're doing all the time. You're not going to be doing that. He worked all the time. All, all, all the time, and, and or even even the blithely-ish part. You know, we used to think, "Yeah, I'm just going to do whatever." Rodrigo, I look at Rodrigo Borgia, and I'm like, pretty sure you're not a Christian. You're you're just happily fine. You're having orgies in the Vatican. You don't care. You think it's a you think it's amusing. Arguably, maybe Yvonne's like that. You go, you. If you were a Christian, you would not be living like this. Having said that, he doesn't seem to be comfortable continuing to live like that. And so is he Is he actually nodding to another part of 1 John, where John tells us, when you do sin, Christ is ready and prepared to forgive you. 
it, it, is, is that what he is? Is somebody that you sit there and you go, I do. I do some of the same stuff Rodrigo does, and then I feel horrible about it. I just feel horrible about it, but I keep getting drawn into it, and then I feel horrible about it. And I'm so angry. I killed my son, and then I went, what did I just do? God, bring it back. Bring it back. Bring it back. For days, praying for a miracle. Paul did this Oh, yeah. Paul was like, I totally want to get rid of this dead body. I'm not dragging that thing around with me. Totally get why nobody trusted me, but Barnabas here. I get that. I get that why Ananias came and went. I'm supposed to talk to you. Yes. I hope that it was. I. He is so terrible. I don't know. I really don't know. Part of me. I, I, I'm right there with Bill as I sit there. And I, he can't. Surely this guy couldn't have had a Christ relationship. And yet I sit there and I go. He genuinely thought he did. And he genuinely begged for repentance, begged for forgiveness in repentance for what he did. So, I mean, my gut reaction is, I sit there and I go, this guy couldn't have been a Christian. And my heart goes, I sure hope he was. Well, this is where, apart from judging yourself by your works, this is where time after time after time we're told in Scripture that you don't judge based on your heart. You don't trust your heart. God is greater than your heart. How do you judge whether or not you're a Christian? Anybody ever ask anybody who should know, how do you know if you're a Christian? Where, how do you become a Christian? Anybody ever ask Paul, what do I need to do to be saved? By the way, the answer is yes. What did he say? Yeah, well... Specifically, when asked, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in your heart and confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. And you'll be saved. It's, if you genuinely, genuinely accept his salvation, if you genuinely believe and you genuinely accept his work on the cross, you're saved. Now, there's a lot of things that, if confess Jesus Christ as Lord, there's a lot of things implicit in that. I don't mean to say this as, as oh, it's an easy thing. Well, it's not easy. But it is simple. How do you gauge if you're a Christian? Do you believe in your heart? Do you confess with your lips that Jesus Christ is Lord? Is that a genuine relationship with Christ? Yes. But don't let anybody judge you on that. Christ's spirit. Yes. Yes. And then, yeah, the other vice versa. Yeah. But, the, the, yeah. Well, I was thinking, this is a case when a little institutionalism would have been helpful, but he needed some accountability. When he had complete control, it, it, it just got out of line. If he had a few advisors, and then he did, he mm -hmm. killed him, but I mean, official advisors, uh, then uh, that would have stopped. Well, and, 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 and balance of yes. power, just, but this is divine right of one person mm -hmm. out of control. Just like George Lucas. Yes, he needs somebody to come along and say, that's just wrong. Uh, he needed a Nathan, too. He needed a uh, Early on. He needed a Nathan or a Luther or an Anabaptist or somebody to sit there and going, let's get back to Scripture. Is this scriptural? How do you respond to this scripturally? Let's get back to the Bible. What would Christ do? Don't what would Christ do? <laughs> Excellent. What would Get one of them bracelets. What would Jesus do? Okay, let's finish with this. Same year, 23-year-old lawyer who had actually been trained to be a priest but became a lawyer because his dad thought he would make more money as a lawyer. Um, much like Martin Luther, but it's kind of flip-flop here. But 23-year-old um, lawyer had a profound conversion experience while he was studying in Paris or, or, Paris or uh, nearby Orléans. 
Anybody know what his name is? Jean Calvin. Jean Calvin. John Calvin. I will never call him John Calvin. Jean Calvin. Became a Christian in 1533. That's where we'll pick it up next week. But all this is legit good theology to be discussing. At what point? I look at Yvonne the Terrible. I almost didn't talk much about him, but he's such a good example of how do you even decide where somebody's at with the Lord and how do you reach out? Is he the sort of person you would go, there is no way I would want to be a, a Lutheran or later on a Calvinist or an Anabaptist going to that court and saying, King, you're wrong. Tsar, I think you're wrong. There's no way I'd want to do that. Or is he exactly the sort of person where you go, oh, he so desperately needs an Nathan. He so desperately needs a pastor. This is exactly the guy I want to reach out to. It's a difficult time in history, but it's worth reminding yourselves that the truth is unkillable, right? Stand for what is true. Go back to what is written. Join us in prayer. Dear Lord, I thank you. I thank you that you and your word and your truth are so much bigger, so much more perfect, so much more unkillable than anything that we would come up with, than even the most horrendous, most terrible kings of this world. I pray, Lord, work in us, help us to see your grace, your goodness, your love for us, not based on whether we merit it, but based on your character. Help us, Lord, to love one another, to interact with one another, to share truth with one another, but to do so in love. We give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. See, it's you guys that make this class cool.